The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Look with me, if you would, in Romans, in chapter 5, and take a look with me. I'll tell you what let's do. I'm sorry, chapter 6. Take, take a look with me, if you would. Here's what I'd like to do. In order for us to make progress in verses 15, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 19 this morning, to get there, I want to remind you of its foundation uh, in verses 12 through 14, where we were last week. So go back with me to Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. This is the Word of God, inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments to God, uh, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For, here's the key verse he ends with, for sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By God's grace, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Well, it's uh, four decades that I've had the privilege to serve Christ as a minister of the gospel. And I've not done the math, but that's a lot of Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. And therefore, as a minister of the gospel, uh, as a pastor teacher, I have had the privilege of Sunday morning, Sunday night sermons, a couple of Bible studies every week, and mentoring groups. And in that, that means I actually have the opportunity to do the deep dive into God's Word every week. 20 to 30 hours in a morning sermon, 14 to 16 hours in an evening, other hours for Bible studies. And um, one of the things that becomes very, I mean, it's just, there are things that you begin to absorb when you get to immerse yourself into God's Word. And one of the things is not only the desire, I have this pastoral desire not only to preach God's Word faithfully um, and uh, contextually, but also that you would grasp God's Word. One of the things that you begin to see is the... The scriptures are not put together by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles that have been called of God to write the scriptures for us. It's not put together uh, haphazardly, serendipity. Uh, There's a clear, can I use this word, architecture to God's word. There's a clear design, a clear architecture to God's word. And each writer of the scripture has their own 
architecture. You can see it. You can feel it. And, um, and you can identify it. Well, Paul stands out that way very clearly. In fact, I'd like to share this with you, just the, the Pauline architecture, because he's got 13 epistles. Uh, and he, of course, his writing kind of dominates the New Testament for us. And, um, and as you read it, there are some things that you will always see in it constantly. And there are a number of things that I count as the architecture of his word, but I just want to mention two of them that hopefully would help you um, as you get into God's word personally, uh, as you get into God's word to disciple someone, to teach someone. And when you're in the Pauline scriptures, there's something you're going to see regularly. And, and let me just put it this way. In fact, Paul calls himself a master builder. Uh, and so when Paul is, uh, is writing the scripture, there's a clear architectural design that keeps coming up. Dare I use the building materials of his day, stones, and, um, and to maybe describe it. When you built a building in the first century, and believe me, in Israel, you're pretty much going to use stone. There's plenty of building material around for you. And there were certain stones that they called foundation stones, pillar stones, foundation stones that were so strong, so solid, so embedded that you could build the entire superstructure. In fact, you needed to build the superstructure on them. Paul is constantly giving you foundation stones. We've already encountered some, and we're going to encounter more in our study of Romans. Romans, this magnus opus of Paul's heart desire. His heart desire is to get to Rome, but he can't get there, so he's sending them, as it were, a written sermon entitled, What is the Gospel of God? And, uh, and what does it do in your life? That's what he's doing in this exposition of the gospel that unfolds for us in the scriptures. And you'll keep, he keeps giving these rock solid foundation stones. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Are. There is none who is good. No, not one. There is none who seek God. All have turned astray. And you can see these rock-solid statements. For us, wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Are there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you keep seeing these foundation stones that we're to build our life because Paul is doing distance gospel evangelism and discipleship to these who are listening to him at Rome and then sending it to us. Why? Here, don't forget this statement we've embraced. The gospel of God is the foundation, the formation, and the motivation of the Christian life. The gospel is the foundation. It saves us. It is the formation. It disciples and develops us. It is the motivation that all of life would be lived to the glory of God. And so he's laying these foundation stones 
But he not only in his writings give us foundation stones. He also gives us capstones. And that is as he develops something. He brings us to glorious truth. Therefore, therefore, here's the capstone. I've laid the foundation stone. Here's the capstone. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Capstone. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those are glorious statements. But he does something else. And that's really germane and highly uh, essential to understand as we are where we are in Romans 6. This, what Martin Lloyd-Jones, Spurgeon, John Murray, I can quote commentator after commentator would tell you, 6, 7, and 8 are the foundational text of the Christian life to grow in and for Christ. They're just, they're crucial. He not only has foundation stones, he not only has capstones, but I want to suggest to you he's got another one. It's a keystone. When I take uh, people to Israel, one of the places we spend a couple of hours, and we could spend, you know, two or three months there. Uh, well, you could spend the rest of your life there, I guess. Uh, is Caesarea by the sea, where Paul was there for two years in his imprisonment. And um, Peter went there the first time the gospel goes to a Gentile, a centurion. So much happened there. It became really the center of Christianity in the land of Israel uh, in the first century. And a burgeoning church was there. And so I love to go there. And there's the theater. And there, when you come to the theater, um, one of the entrances is a preserved first century arch. And you see this arch with no support, yet it, sta- it is there suspended over the entranceway. And the, what keeps it in place now for 2,000 years since Herod the Great built that is a keystone. The keystone is bigger on one side, smaller on the other, and it wedges it in, and everything on both sides is connected to it. Paul keeps putting keystones whenever he writes. I mean, he gives it away with words like this over 200 times in Romans. Therefore. In other words, I'm about to say something that's important, but you can't understand it without understanding what what leads to it. You cannot. You've got to know this in order to know that. Or so. Or for. Or since. Those are keystone words that we have a connecting tissue here. Sometimes he connects the tissues by having given a capstone statement. He then follows up with a keystone statement such as, what shall we say then? And then comes a rhetorical question whereby he gets to the issues. And he does that. With his foundation stones that give us, now hope you, please, I'm praying that maybe there's an echo in your mind from a week ago that in discipleship, Paul is teaching me gospel discipleship and that the profile of gospel discipleship is not, oh preacher, give me five things to do. No, it starts with no 
be, then do. It's not, what's the five things I need to do? No, no, no. What do you need to know? Sound doctrine leads to sound words that leads to sound life. Know, be, and do. And so Paul never introduces in his epistles the imperatives without first giving the statements of fact. In the Greek, we call it the indicatives. He's got the statements of fact. Here's who you are in Christ. Here's who you are in Christ. Know it and be it. Now you're ready to do because your doing does not put you in Christ. Your doing does not save you. Your doing is there for your Savior. So I need to make sure you know your Savior. Well, he has given a number of these, and he is fully aware as he has unfolded the gospel that there are going to be people who twist gospel truth. And they twist gospel truth to demise, to the demise of baby Christians and to, uh, and to the demise of the testimony of the gospel in the world. There, remember, there were two basic heresies Paul was accused of. And those two basic heresies, on the one hand, was nomianism or legalism. That is, you're saved by your works of the law. And, and, that's, and that's the way that you're going to be saved. And without the works of the law, your works of the law, you can't be saved. And so, and then there was the accompanying heresy of antinomianism. Well, if I'm saved by grace, then I can go do what I want to. This bohemian Christianity can be all about mine. In fact, I'm doing God a favor if I, um, if I sin because, um, if I sin a lot, then he's got to come up with a lot more grace, which gives him glory. So I'll sin a lot to give him grace. And so the apostle Paul begins to deal with these things and he uses his keystone statements to connect things as he works through let me let me kind of show you we're, we're at this morning we're at a third question but he actually had started earlier and then that start that earlier start in Romans 3:20 he asked the question that he knows people are using out there well God's law is here and salvation must come through obedience to God's law. So in Romans 3.20, the question is, how can we be saved without the works of the law? How can we possibly be saved without the works of the law? I need to be circumcised. I need to go to the Passover. I need to do the three different tithes. I need to do the, the wave offerings. I need to do the, uh, uh, the atonement offerings. I need to do all of those things. And if I don't do those things, I can't be saved because I'm saved by the works of the law. Why else would God have given us the law? Well, Paul says, I'll tell you why he gave you the law. He gave you the law with, that has no power to save you, and you have no power to take the law and save yourself. He gave you the law to show you you needed grace to be saved. He gave you the law to show you you're a sinner. He gave you the law to show you your sin nature and your impotence, your helpless and your hopeless. And he gave you the law to show you that you need a Savior. You need someone to take your place. That's why he gave you the law. And so he answers the question in Romans 3.20. How can we be saved without the works of the law? 
He answers the question in Romans 5.1. Here's how. Through Christ, who did the works necessary to save you. People will say, Pastor, do you believe we're saved by works? Absolutely. But not yours, not mine. My works present the problem. My works present the uh, uh, the issue to be dealt with. My righteousness is like filthy rags. No, we're saved through the works of Christ on our behalf. And we are saved by the work of Christ who sends the Holy Spirit to work on us, in us, and through us. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And thus, he comes to a capstone verse in Romans 5.1. After answering the question from Romans 3.20, how can we be saved without the works of the law? And he brings us to Christ and says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have access to God. We suffer for God. We rejoice in God. And we are sealed by the Spirit of God. And he answers it. And then he moves to a, another question. Well, he not only knows there's those over here that would twist, um, that would twist the law. I mean, it would twist the um, uh, salvation from salvation by grace to salvation by works. He also knows that there are those that when he declares that we're saved by grace alone through faith, faith alone in Christ alone. And then when he gets to this point, when he says that, that here's this glorious, here's another capstone verse that he gives. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Oh, you mean I can't out God's grace? Right. Oh, well, how about if I just make a lifestyle of sin, antinomianism, libertinism? Why don't I make a lifestyle of sin? I'm doing God a favor because he'll have to come up with more grace to defeat my sin since grace abounds much more than abounding sin, then I'll do abounding sin. That'll cause God to give abounding grace. Now, the rationale there is absurd, obviously. But he now begins to answer that. And he answers that in Romans 6 and verse 1. Take a look at it. He comes to this statement that what about um, sin that uh, when grace... Uh, when uh, sin abounds, grace does more to more abound. Here's what he says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And then he goes on to answer it. So the first question that he answered is, how, how can we be saved without the works of the law? Well, here's, here's the answer. Answer, Romans, uh, from Romans 3.20 to Romans chapter 5. No one is saved. By the work, by their works of the law. That's the answer. Everyone who Christ saves is saved not by their works of the law. They're saved by Christ's work under the law. His obedience under the law to take the judgment for our sins 
and his righteousness under the law to to procure for us obedience. Christ's passive obedience unto death, an atoning death, taking our sins upon him. Christ's active obedience to provide a righteousness to give to us so that we now have a redemption where our record of sin has been removed by Christ's work and our, his works are given to us and we have the perfections of Christ. The gospel is the power of God and the gospel is the righteousness of God. No one is saved by their works of the law. Everyone who Christ saves is saved by Christ's work under the law and then Christ's work on us, in us, and through us by the Holy Spirit. Well, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound then? Well, the answer to that is clear, Paul says. All I gotta do is take you to your baptism. What is the theology of baptism? That the, that Christ has poured out his blood upon us and Christ has, has poured out his spirit upon us and Christ has sprinkled us clean by his blood because of his redeeming work on the cross and we are in union with Christ. You're no longer united to Adam. And so that you are in the, uh, you are in sin's death and sin's indictment. You are now united to the second Adam Christ. You bear his name. You were baptized in the name of Christ. That means when he died, you died. When he was raised, you were raised. When he died for your sins, when he died for your sins and when he died to sin, you died to sin in him. When he was raised into newness of life before God, then you were raised into newness of life before God. So the answer to, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No, the answer is, how can we who died to it still live in it? Now we know we still got sin living in us, but we no longer live in its dominion. We are no longer under its reign. We are no longer in its power. And then he gives a capstone verse for us in that. Take a look at Romans 6 and come down to the end of the chapter that I just read, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. We now, with a new heart and a new record, present the our bodies as statements of, I love the language, it's worship language and warrior language. We live in newness of life unto God. We live a life of worship. Whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, do all to the glory of God. And we live at war against sin. Continue in sin? No. We're at war with it. And we are presenting our hands, our arms, our feet, our brain, our mouth, our tongue. We are presenting the members of our body as instruments. Present. That's a military term. Present arms. That's a military term that now I, by God's grace, am at war with the sin in my life that still remains. And I don't want it to live in me. I want to put it to death. Why? I want to worship God by killing sin and following Jesus. Therefore, the members of my body, instead of being given over to sin, would be given over to righteousness. And he says, well, if, well, listen, if, um, if sin is not to have dominion over you, and now look at that last part I read, you're under law but under grace. Oh, 
Well, if I'm under grace and not under law, hey, maybe I got, do I have permission to sin? Now, I want you all to see this. Come on, take a look. Take a closer look with me. I want you to see it. Look at Romans 6, 1. Uh, are we to continue in sin? That, that is, are we to make a lifestyle habit of sin so that God will be put to the need to provide so much grace? And that would give him glory. Well, he answers that definitively. But now look, when he says we're not under law but under grace, he anticipates another question. Look at verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Oh, if I'm not under law but under grace, is that a permission slip just to sin? And he answers what? By no means. Or again, anathema, God forbid. Then he says, by no means do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He says this, do you not know that your life reveals who is your master? Do you not know that your life reveals whom you are serving? If you're presenting the members of your body to sin, then what you are declaring is that sin is master over you. If you're presenting the members of your body to righteousness, then you are presenting yourselves to God out of love to God. And that is, notice that doesn't make, that reveals that the Lord is the Lord of your life. It doesn't save you. It declares your relationship with your Savior. Will you be perfect? No. That's why we confess our sins, because he's forgiven us. But we don't sign peace treaties with sin. We don't embrace sin as a lifestyle that grace may abound. And we don't embrace and sign peace treaties with any sin because we're not under the law, but under grace. And that's what he declares. Spoiler alert. There is amazing patterns that are here. When Paul... When Paul wants to handle these questions, how does he do it? Well, we spent three weeks looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. How did Paul respond to the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He had a, remember, an emotional response. He then had a theological or instructional response. He then had a direction. He spoke from the heart to the mind and the will. But he didn't speak to the will until he spoke to the mind. Because the pathway to the heart for the work of saving grace is through the mind. And he shows you that when you know the truth, you're emotionally invested. So when he hears, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? An emotional response, God forbid. And then an instructional, sound doctrine, theological response. I'll tell you what you need to know. Do you not know that 
You're in Christ and Christ is in you. And when he died for your sins, he died to sin and you died to sin with him. And when he was raised, you were raised with him to the praise of God and worship and at warfare with sin until he brings you home in your perfection and perfects you in eternity. Do you not know that your lifestyle here? And then he speaks to that of how to present yourself. How to present your members of your body, not to be saved, but to your Savior. Well, guess what? He now asks another rhetorical question. Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Guess what? Same profile. Same protocol. Emotional, instructional, and then directional. Take a look at the next verse. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Emotional. God forbid. Paul again brings an emotional response. Now he goes to discipleship. Do you not what? No. Now comes instruction. No be do. Now comes the instruction. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient, uh, as if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, folks, I've got to I got, just take a moment with me. I got to take you all the way back. I got to take you all the way back into the first century where slavery was was the culture. The, the historians tell us that over 60% of the people in the Roman Empire were in some form of slavery. And we go to the Bible and how it deals with slavery. On the one hand, what we have had in this country in the past, it absolutely condemns and forbids chattel slavery. He forbid, the Bible declares that as man-stealing and it is not to be found among us. But the Bible does make something available that's very interesting. And that is, and that is something that uh, became known in our culture as indentured servitude. Um, an economic form of slavery where I owe somebody something and I give myself to them, but it was limited in the Old Testament to seven years. And when the seven years were up, you were freed with everything that you had accrued during that seven years. You were to be set free. This is all described for us in Exodus 21. I don't have time to turn there. Please check me out. But here is something else in it. In the indentured servitude of the Old Testament, if the one who had put themselves as a slave or servant to a master for an economic servitude, that at the end of the seven years, they were to be set free. If the master, once they freed, the servant or the slave decided, I am astonished at the benevolence and kindness of my master. I want to continue out of love to him as a slave. Exodus 21 describes how you do that. You go... You go to the master and say, out of the love you've expressed to me, 
And my love to you now, I desire to continue. And I desire to be a doulos, a bondservant, a slave to you. Again, man-stealing, absolutely forbidden. But doulos, bondservant, because having paid off the debt in the seven years of indentured servitude, they now had developed a relationship that as as they were emancipated out of love to the master, they want to continue. They want to be his slave. A doulos, a bondservant. Exodus 21 tells you what to do. That person would go to a doorpost. And the master would take them to the doorpost. And they would place their ear against the doorpost. And the master would take an awl. An A-W-L, an awl. And then drive a hole through the lobe of the ear. And then normally they would wear a ring. That's why one time as a pastor, some folks, it was a wonderful opportunity for me to have a discussion with some teenagers a number of years ago. They said, now, pastor, what do you think about ear piercing? Now, there's a pastoral question for you. And I said, well, it depends on why you're piercing. And I said, now, my ear is pierced. They looked at me and said, really? Oh, yeah, I said, there's an ear piercing I believe in. In fact, I do. I've done it. You see, Jesus came and set me free. I'm now his slave because he made me his son. Out of his love to me, now I, out of love to him, want to follow him. He's not only my savior and has set me free. I now, out of love, desire to follow him. Or as we just sung, I've been set free. I rose and went forward to follow thee. That's that, this is what Paul is describing here in this slave language. He's talking about this Free, love-driven slavery to the one who by love redeemed you through his grace. Let me just walk you through it, and then I'll give you the takeaway. We'll close in prayer. Look at that next verse. Here is your key verse. Don't miss this verse. He says this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, that leads to death, or of obedience, that leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God. Here's your key verse. Here's your, here's your, here's a, here is a capstone verse. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient where? From the heart. See it? See it? My life is not under the law. My life has a new heart. Remember what we just read? In the blessing of the new covenant, with a new heart that has the law of God written on it. Now, I've got your law to use lawfully. It can't save me and I can't save myself with it. 
But now that I have a new record, I have a new heart, I now have a new life. And that new life, while imperfect, is intentional. And it is intentionally there to follow Christ, Master and Lord and Savior, from the heart. So from the heart, we are there to follow Him. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves under the dominion of sin, we've been set free. We got a new record. We're forgiven. We got a new heart. And that new heart, we now watch, become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. Folks, that's This is my life. It's not to manufacture sermons. It's to preach the word so that you have the sound doctrine for the sound life, for sound words. That you have that. That's why we got a disciple. That's why you got a disciple maker in your life. That's why you got someone at the lectern in the Sunday school community. That's why you get in the word every day. I want my life from my new heart to be guided by sound doctrine. No, be, then do. I want it to be guided so that I can follow the one who set me free and I'm his. I am his every organ, every member of my body. And I don't do this to be saved. I do this because I love my Savior, who by his love has set me free to rise up. My chains have fallen off. Rise up to follow him. Then he finishes it out. And we'll come back here to finish verses 20 through the end um, in a couple of weeks. But let me just finish reading it. And having been set free, notice regeneration. I've been born again. I got a new heart. Having been set free from sin, its dominion. I still got it in my life, but it doesn't have my life. It's not my life. Having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members, see that language, worship and warrior language again. For, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, a death spiral under the dominion of sin. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading you to a set-apart life for Jesus, leading you to sanctification. Well, that's the glorious truth of God's Word. There's a wonderful moment, and uh, there's this wonderful moment that I have when I take people to Israel, and I haven't been able to do it now for 18 years. It's called, there's a place called Shechem. It's where Genesis 12 and Joshua 8 come together. And uh, and there's two mountains where Shechem in the valley. What's Shechem? Genesis 12. It's where Abraham came from the land of the Chaldeans. And he came right there and God stopped him and initiated covenant. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to. He's surrounded by Canaanites. Six nations surround him. And God tells him, this is your land. I'm going to give it to you. This is going to be your home. This is going to be your land. And I am going to give it to you and your seed and make you a nation. 
He'll formalize it in Genesis 15. He initiates it in Genesis 12. And he goes over and lives between Bethel and Ai. Half a century later, after they've been taken into Egypt, matured, multiplied, and mobilized, they now come out to dispel the Canaanite nations. And once they take Jericho, their next step is between Ai and Bethel, Shechem. And then build an altar on Mount Ebal and write the law in uncut stones and build the altar of uncut stones. And from Mount Ebal, write the, announce the curses of the law to my people in Shechem, in the valley, as they listen. And then do the sacrifices on the altar. Then read the blessings of the law from Mount Gerizim. The altar doesn't go on Mount Gerizim. The altar goes on Mount Ebal, where a substitutionary sacrifice has been placed to take the curses of the law, and we're no longer under them. Now, the law is the declaration of God's glory. And I'm not under it. Oh, I've got it written on my heart. And I love it. But not to save me. Because I'm not under it. I'm under grace and the sacrifice of Christ. What a glorious moment. Well, praise God. Our sacrifice is not Mount Ebal. Of lambs and goats. We have a savior that went to Mount Calvary. And the Bible says cursed is he who hangs upon the tree. And he took the curses of the law there on the cross. And now from Mount Zion where he brings us. He declares the blessings. The blessings of grace by him who has redeemed us from the curses of the law and the power of sin and the penalty of sin and assured us the perfections in glory, even as he sanctifies us on the way to glory. Are we to sin? No. We are to follow Christ. And when we sin, not if, but when we sin, we don't, we don't present a permission slip. We confess and he forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness that we might rise and keep following him by his grace. So here's the takeaway and then I'll close in prayer. So uh, very simply this, our sonship, salvation by grace in Christ is revealed. Notice it's not achieved. This doesn't achieve it. Christ achieves our salvation. But our sonship salvation by grace in Christ is revealed by our slaveship sanctification of love to Christ. He first loved us. We're sons of God. Now he owns us. 
of love to him, we rise up to follow him into glory. Our sonship, know your sonship. Be sons of God. Now, what do you do as sons? You go to your Savior and say to him who first loved you, I love you. And Jesus, I'm coming to the doorpost. I've been set free by you out of your love. Now I come to the doorpost. And Jesus, by the Spirit of God, with the Word of God, drives the oil into our ear, not our nose. He doesn't lead us around by the nose. But in our ear, we hear His voice. And when He speaks, when I speak, I can't do this. But I thank God that he from time to time visits the voice of a preacher or a teacher or a discipler who is teaching the word of God. And in the midst of that voice, Jesus speaks. And they, by faith, hearing Christ, rise up and call upon the Lord. And Jesus' voice speaks. And when his voice speaks, it's like at Bethany. And we who are in the dungeon of sin, in the chains of sin, in the tomb of sin... We hear his voice just as Lazarus did. Lazarus, come forth, and he comes forth. And when Jesus speaks through his word, men and women rise up, chains fall off. They come out of tombs to follow Jesus with all of their heart and their life. And that voice brings them forth. And then we hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice. And we follow him. My ears, by God's grace, have been pierced. I now can hear him. And I now can follow him. Continue to sin? No. God help me kill sin. And follow Jesus. Help me, help you. Present ourselves to him. Rise up. Your chains have fallen off. Hear his voice and follow him. And so revealed to the world, we follow him whom we love because he first loved us. God, thank you so much that we get the opportunity to demonstrate to the world our love to Christ through obedience. Please, Jesus, please, Jesus, speak. May your voice call men and women from the tomb of sin, from the chains of sin, set them free. That they might come forth to follow thee. For those here who have been born again and have a new heart and a new record. May we embrace the opportunity to declare to the world we follow Jesus with an ear to hear his voice in his word. May we from the heart embrace that sound doctrine, that standard of teaching 
so that we know to be and to do all for him. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.